Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Wiley Cash, the New York Times bestselling author of When Ghosts Come Home, a thrilling and suspenseful mystery against the backdrop of the coastal Carolinas in 1984. When a plane crashes in the middle of the night at a nearby airfield, Sheriff Winston Barnes discovers the body of a black man shot dead in the grass near the crash site. The long suspect list, including the pilot of the downed plane, simmering racial tensions and an uncertain future, Barnes sets out to do his duty amongst extraordinary circumstances. Warren Wilkinson, author of An American Spy, had this to say about the book. Wiley Cash's latest is an unputdownable knockout. Written in death thrilling prose, this book is both gripping murder mystery and a thoughtful exploration of systemic racism in America. Perfect novel for our present moment. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time. Join us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a uh, recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. we also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing. And uh, you can join us there and, and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I, I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Wiley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Landis. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now Lauren Wilkson calls that, a, uh, as I said in the opening there, a unputdownable book. That's some great praise. Yeah, I, w- I was really happy because I think Lauren herself happened to have written an unputdownable book with American <laughs> Spy. So the fact that she said that about mine made me feel uh, really happy. She was she was very kind to do that. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book too, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy getting into it. But before we do that, just a few things about you for our listeners. Uh, you've won the Southern Book Prize twice, uh, finalist for the Penn Robert Bingham Prize, Sir Walter Raleigh Award for Fiction, recipient of the Pat Conroy Legacy Award from SEBA. You also teach at UNC Asheville. And you're very active in the writing community. And this is your fourth uh, book. You uh, 
a land more kind than home, a, a kind of a thriller, this dark road to mercy, another thriller, the last ballad, historical fiction set in Gastonia, a bit of suspense there. And then when ghosts come home, as I said, a mystery and somewhat of a thriller too. Um, now, first, having mentioned your books, I have a question because when I was looking back at what I'd read, uh, I noticed that uh, you're somewhat attracted to sheriffs as characters. <laughs> in, a, in A Land More Kind Than Home, one of your narrators is a sheriff, uh, Clem Barfield, a sheriff with his own painful past. And then you bring this book, When Ghosts Come Home, and we meet another troubled sheriff uh, who's the primary narrator for this story. His name is Winston Barnes. We're going to talk about him. But tell us why you're drawn to sheriffs as a way to tell these stories. And also take a minute to tell us about Winston Barnes. So I don't know that I'm so... I don't know that I'm necessarily drawn to sheriffs in, in as much as I am just aware of what interesting places they hold in these rural communities. What, I, what I'm really interested in is, is rural living, rural lives, um, and how people navigate those spaces. Because in, in rural spaces, especially in the American South, oftentimes justice kind of takes care of itself. And unless... Um, people like sheriffs or deputies or, or other, you know, social leaders or people to elected office step in, justice can very easily tip one way or another. And, you know, in North Carolina, my, my first book, A Land More Kind Than Home, was set in Madison County, which is a big county. And then this most recent novel, When Ghosts Come Home, is set in Brunswick County, which is another enormous county. And they're on polar ends of the state, Madison and Western North Carolina and Brunswick and about as far southeast as you can go, actually as far southeast as you can go. And these are just big, wild spaces. There's a lot of land. There's small towns primarily. But Brunswick is near Wilmington, which is a pretty metropolitan, cosmopolitan little city. And Madison is near Asheville, which is also a pretty metropolitan, cosmopolitan little city. And the divide between these spaces is something that's always really interested me. Um, the last place people in Wilmington want to go, especially in 1984, is Brunswick County. And I think the same could be said in 1986 when Land More Kind Home was set in Madison County. Um, now, you know, no one can any longer afford to live in Wilmington or Asheville. So they're all going to Madison County and Brunswick County. Um, but, you know, Winston is a sheriff. He's, he's up for re-election. It's the fall of 1984. The election's happening in one week. And it's dawning on him. He, he served his county well. He's, he's someone who believes in justice. He believes in, you know, uh, the letter of the law, but he also understands that the right thing and the legal thing aren't always the same thing. And he kind of walks that fine line of putting pressures on himself that many people in the community are never really aware of. He's also got some things in his past that are kind of haunting him and still um, to say upsetting him would be uh, would be uh, to putting it uh, lightly, but you know he's in this moment in the fall of 1984, and he's up against this kind of you know nationalist figure, this this wealthy son of a land developer who's had everything handed to him, who gets to play all these various parts of tough guy and rich guy and Robin Hood guy for those he appeals to. And our sheriff, Winston, is pretty aware that he's not, he's not going to win this re-election, even though he's done everything right. It's just, it's just the world around him has changed. It's 1984. The war on drugs is raging. And when this airplane appears and there's this dead man alongside the runway, all of these nationalist sympathies, many of which we're familiar with if we've participated in the 
political process here in, in, in America from 2018 or 2008 to now, really, or 2016 especially, many of these 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 polarizations were 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 present in 1984 as well. They weren't quite as explicit as they are now, but they were certainly implicit in places like North Carolina. And mm-hmm. so the sheriff is really struggling in this moment, trying to get to the bottom of this mystery, trying to heal his family, trying to assure his legacy in this community that he's sworn to serve and protect. Hmm. Yeah, and Bradley Fry, the wealthy white supremacist who's running for sheriff, as you mentioned, he's going to be in a little reading we're going to have in a minute because he shows up uh, while they're kind of looking over this plane that's crashed on a very short runway, too big a plane, too short a runway. Um, But you mentioned the setting, and I'd like to talk about that just a little bit more because uh, I've been down to that area, Southport, uh, specifically Oak Island, North Carolina, across the waterway there, which is the mouth of the Cape Fear River, um, is Bald Head Island, which is now a very ritzy kind of place, not Oak Island. I'm just wondering, do you have a personal connection to there? Because it's, you sort of brought that area to life in the book, uh, and you really got the feel uh, of someone who's kind of knew that area. Have you have you been down there? Have you been fishing? Have you been <laughs> to the beach? What's what's going on there? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting story. You know, I grew up in, in the western part of the state, went to college in Asheville, and lived a good part of my life there, and also in West Virginia. And I always thought that. Appalachia was kind of inside me, and I think it is. But I'm also realizing that I'm the kind of person, no matter where I live, I want to set down some kind of anchor, some kind of roots. And we moved down to Wilmington, uh, my wife and I, from West Virginia in the fall of 2013. And then we had two children, and those are the ultimate roots. And my parents, coincidentally, left Gastonia, where I was raised. Um, They moved down to Oak Island in 1998. And it was a very sleepy, small, very local kind of island, village island when they moved down. And so they've been down there. My dad passed away in 2016, but they've been down there. My mom's been down there for going on 20, 23 years or so. And so when we moved back here to this part of the country in 2013, our first daughter was born in 2014, our second in 2016. I looked around and I thought their lives being from this place with salt water and people with boats and this landscape that is so flat and, and, and so humid and so buggy and so beautiful and so mysterious and so historic, their childhoods are going to be so different from my experience. And there's going to, there, there might very well come a time when we see the world or the state or our country or one another differently because I am not from here and they are very much from here. And I thought, I've got to do something about that. So. I thought maybe I'll try to write a book about this part of the state. And I just kind of stumbled into this story and this idea. And, 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 you know, I've spent a lot of time in Oak Island and Southport and I've worked on Baldhead Island one summer, coincidentally. And so I do know this area pretty well. I don't know it as well as someone who is, you know, of it, who was born from the soul of it, like my daughters uh, were, but I do know it well enough to, uh, to know where I need to dive a little deeper. Uh, into the history, into the culture, into the political moment. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk about the inciting incident in a minute. It's early morning. Uh, Sheriff uh, is asleep with his wife, uh, who's who's got cancer, and he hears something in the night. Uh, loud engines. Uh, there's a crash at the small runway uh, on Oak Island. So he gets up to go investigate. Um, he gets there. The plane's empty. He finds a dead body. 
the dead body is a black man who's never been in any trouble. Um, right there, you've got a mystery. But where did this vision of this plane dropping out of the sky, you know, onto Oak Island come from for you? Well, I was at an event uh, at East Carolina University several years ago. I was working on The Last Ballad. I was there for a literary homecoming. It was myself and, and, and several other North Carolina writers, Fred Chapel and a couple of others. And there was an event in the library. I wasn't part of this particular event, but I went to it. And I ended up kind of talking at the end of the event to um, the husband of one of the librarians. It may have been the university librarian's husband. And I ha we had just moved back to Wilmington. This was the fall of 2013. And he said, oh, I spent a lot of time out on Oak Island. That's a strange little place. And I said, well, my parents live there. And he said, did you ever hear the story of that airplane? And he told me this outlandish story of this airplane that had crash landed and they had to hire a stunt pilot and they had to do all of these things. And I looked into it for about five minutes and didn't find any paper trails explaining that story. I even, I even reached out to the director of the airfield there. It's now a pretty um, successful little airstrip, uh, uh, much more um, commercial than it was certainly in 1984 when it was still a grass airstrip. And he had no idea what I was talking about. So I thought, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to research this any, any more deeply because if it's true, I want to make it up. And if it's not true, uh, I'm going to make it up anyway. So um, that's kind of where the idea came from. But I thought forever, I thought, well, who flew this aircraft? Who's involved with why is it there? Who flew it? Why did they fly it? Um, who's involved on the ground? And it just nagged at me. And I was working on The Last Ballad at the time, which was a monster of a book, a ton of research, a lot of kind of driving, driving blind at night trying to figure out where that book was going to go. But much of the time that I was working on The Last Ballad, I had the story of this airplane kind of ping-ponging around in my mind. And I wrote what I thought was going to be a short story about it, and it turned into like a 60-page story. And I sent it to my agent, and I said, you know, is this too long for a magazine? Can you help me cut it? And so we went back and forth on a couple of drafts, and he said, you're never going to be able to cut this story down to get it 20 pages, 30 pages, which is a long for a magazine, as you know, Landis. And um, he said, go back and work on the last ballad. You know, dear God, please finish that book. You've been working <laughs> on it forever. Just stop tinkering with these short stories. And so by the time that I'd finished the last ballad, I had another novel under contract, and it was just a blank space. I, I, I had sold a blank novel. Um uh, and we just slotted the story of this airplane. And for a long time, uh, in my family, we called this novel The Mysterious Airplane. And <laughs> you know, every now and then, I would ask my daughters, who were now six and five, that at the time might have been two and three or three and four or four and five, I would say, who's flying this airplane? Because I didn't know. Who, who y'all think's flying? Who flew this airplane? <laughs> and they just began saying, well, a ghost flew it. A ghost flew this airplane. And that's why there's nobody in it when the sheriff arrives. And so a ghost flew this airplane. And so the idea of ghosts was kind of lodged in my head as soon almost as they could talk well enough to understand what their dad did for a living and the complications of trying to put a story together. And so the fact that ghosts figure into the title and that metaphorical ghosts figure so prominently in the novel itself um, does not come as a surprise to me. Yeah, well, I was interesting because I was going to ask you about the title and the book. I like I like the book cover. It took me a little bit of time to find the airplane in the top right hand corner. It's kind of hidden there. Maybe that's part of the you know idea here. But it looks it does look like 
a beach setting early in the morning, uh, maybe the inland waterway it's flying over or something. And uh, you got the title here, When Ghosts Come Home. Um, you mentioned the story about the ghost flying the plane. The metaphorical ghost is what I want to talk to you about. If it, maybe without trying to give too much away, talk a little bit about what you can relating to how that metaphor speaks to the story. Sure. You know, there are, there are a couple of, there are three really main characters in the novel. Uh, I've already talked about the sheriff, Winston Barnes. He has some things in his past. He was, you know, living in Gastonia early on in his law enforcement career and some, and some things that he is responsible for there have haunted him ever since. And when he discovers the body of Rodney Bellamy, this local man on the runway in the middle of the night, it triggers some of these horrifying memories that he thought he had escaped. And so he's being followed. The, 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 these ghosts are coming home to him, um, these psychological, these, these emotional ghosts. And then his daughter, Colleen, who's in her mid-20s, just shows up the day after the airplane lands in the middle of the night. She flies home from Texas, where she's living with her new husband. She is suffering from this soul-crushing recent trauma. And she, too, was pursued by the ghosts of decisions she's made, the ghosts of life she left behind in North Carolina, the ghosts of whatever remains of her marriage. And she is working through numerous issues, even, even issues with her mother and father when she comes home. There's a moment in the novel where, you know, this is a law school graduate. She's, she's all, thought all these things were going to happen in her life. And she comes home and she's heartbroken and she's lonely. And she goes into her old bedroom and there's a beanbag chair and shag carpeting and David Cassidy posters and Joan Jett posters. And she just thinks, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm a 17-year-old loser back at my parents' house trying to make sense of my broken heart and my misguided efforts. And so she's haunted. And then another is a, is a young African-American boy from Atlanta who is the uh, brother-in-law of the man who's found murder. This, this young man's name is Jay, and he's been sent up by his parents to uh, rural North Carolina because he got into some trouble in Atlanta. And, you know, his parents are from the country and in, in rural Georgia, and they know that for for a young black child in the in the urban South and places like Atlanta, if you're going to get in trouble, then you got to you write the ship as quickly as you can. And so they sent him up to the coast of North Carolina to live with his older sister, who's just had a baby. She's she's married. Um, they have, uh, you know, the kind of quiet life that Jay's parents are hoping will get him, you know, free of these bad influences in Atlanta. And so he's haunted by some of the pressures of being a young black man in the South, 1984, all of the expectations and the stereotypes and the limitations and all these slow points of pressure that trigger real rage in him that causes him to make some decisions that both open the novel and also cause the story to kind of collapse down on many of the characters. Yeah, in the book, uh, he sort of, his friends sort of kidded him about going to the country because he was actually going, going in the middle of nowhere. And when he gets mm -hmm. there, he's sort of faced with uh, uh, this racism, uh, which is kind of a theme of the book as well. And which gets us to our reading here because we're back to, to Bradley Fry. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's the worst, you know, kind of example of, you know, what, you know, prejudice and racism would be because he's trying to assume office and give it some kind of legal stamp. And he's probably going to do it because of his, you know, money and everything else. And he's sort of rounding up people to do things. 
Uh, set up this little scene, if you would, before you read this, because you're going to start reading with Fry and Winston having a conversation. Yeah, um, I want to say a, a few more words about Bradley Fry. You describe him perfectly. He, uh, his father is deceased, but he left him this very uh, successful uh, building contractor firm, and he's stamping out these neighborhoods left and right on this kind of boggy soil on the coast of North Carolina. He's running TV ads, which is unheard of in an election like this. Um, but he's the kind of guy who works in building, uh, who never gets dirty, who has clean shoes. And anybody who grew up playing, as I did, playing sports and basketball, especially in a place like North Carolina, will understand what I say. Uh, what I mean when I say that as a kid, Bradley Fry is the kind of guy who calls his own fouls when the ball doesn't go. <laughs> and that's the, the, the clearest <laughs> distillation of who Bradley Fry is. Yeah, that's good. So at this moment, uh, it, the, the sun has come up. Um, the body has been discovered on the runway. Uh, the airplane is still out there. They're trying to figure out how to process this airplane, how to you know, catalog it for evidence. Do they need to move it? It's out exposed to the elements. The, the rear landing gear has snapped off. It's too big for the runway. And the sheriff's got a real mess on his hands. And the media's shown up and the election's in a week. And suddenly his challenger, Bradley Fry, comes rolling up in his, uh, his, his cleanly pressed work clothes and his enormous uh, dually uh, with his family's name on the side of it. I thought I'd come by and see if I could help out, Fry said. I heard y'all might have your hands full this morning. He looked out toward the runway, and then he looked over at the gathered group of reporters. A few of them were recording the scene on the runway where the ambulance had parked. Two paramedics lifted a stretcher holding Rodney's covered body into the back of the ambulance. Rollins and Roundtree stood by and watched. Those are the FBI. The FBI has shown up. We're doing okay, Winston said. Things are moving along. Ain't that right, Deputy Kepler? That's right, Sheriff, Kepler said, his voice quiet. Moving along. Winston looked at Fry. But we appreciate you coming by. Well, I heard y'all had a dead colored boy out there on the runway, Fry said. For the moment, Winston ignored him and looked at Kepler. You mind heading back out there? I'll get somebody here soon to relieve you. Kepler nodded, and then he turned and walked back toward the runway. Winston turned to face Fry. Man, he said. What? He was a man, Winston said. You said boy, but he was a man. Yeah, well, Fry said. Y'all thinking drugs? We're not thinking anything right now, Brad, Winston said. We've got an investigation to complete. There's plenty of time for thinking later. Well, I guess what the voters have to say about that next week, huh, Sheriff? He smiled. I guess we will, Winston said. Fry squinted his eyes and looked out at the airplane on the runway. He smiled. See some FBI fellows out there, he said. I bet that means it was drugs. He crossed his arms. Drugs from Mexico. And you got the colors out here waiting to unload them and move them through this county. That's a great theory, Winston said. If you'll excuse me, I need to get back to work. Fry put his hand on Winston's shoulder to stop him as he tried to step past him toward Marie's driver's side door. Winston looked over at the reporters. Most of them were now busy winding cords and loading equipment back into their vans. You shoot him? Fry asked. Don't touch me, Brad, Winston said. I know you took out a color boy back in Gastonia. Good for you. You got this one, too. The ambulance drove past on its way out of the parking lot. You just let me know what I can do, Sheriff, 
Fry said. I've got a bunch of boys in my crew who'd be happy to lend a hand. I don't plan to wait until I'm sworn in as sheriff to protect this county. Winston shrugged off Fry's hand. He looked down at the gun on Fry's belt, an expensive browning high power with the mother-of-pearl handle that Winston couldn't imagine Fry even figuring out how to hold, much less shoot. You can start by leaving that sidearm at home, he said. It's illegal to open carry, and I'd hate to have to jail my opponent so close to the election. Would you now? Fry said. I would, Winston said, but I will. Get back in your daddy's truck, Brad. Go to work. <laughs> that's that's the kind of scene where you're going, yeah, yeah, kick ass, uh, yeah. Winston. But you Get can see, old, yeah, you can see in this uh, that you set this up really well. And you know, of course, every novel I think you know has to have a good antagonist. It can sometimes be circumstances, you know, that the that the main character is dealing with. But in this case, it's a person. Uh, it's also the prejudice that's circulating around. Um, how did this come to you? And you also added the tension also by having the election coming up. So you've added that layer in there. Are these things you thought of initially, or did you come back and try to layer in more suspense and more conflict in your rewrites? You know, I don't, in terms of rewrites, I, 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 I hand wrote, I ended up handwriting this novel for the most part. Um, I had written it and written it and written it on the computer. So when I, when I think of rewrites and drafts, I'm just saving, 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 rewriting, saving. <laughs> and it's hard to even think about drafts in the way that we might traditionally think about that. Right. You know, and I, I didn't I didn't originally have Bradley Fry being the challenger. He was actually a relatively minor character because um, I was still kind of feeling my way through what were the opposing forces in this. And once I settled on Winston as the through line of the story as being the character who was going to shoulder primarily the the primary point of view, along with his daughter and, and Jay, um, the young man from Atlanta, I knew that Winston needed to have pressures on him. And that's how we get to know our characters. That's how we get to know people in real life. You know, you never know someone as well as you know them as when they're under pressure. And I thought the more pressure that I can put on Winston, the more we'll see him reveal who he is, both in terms of his capabilities and his limitations. And also, the more the the narrative will be able to grab onto different parts of the story. Because if I'm only focusing on the mystery of the airplane and Rodney Bellamy found alongside it, then I'm just focusing on a mystery. And I'm just not the kind of writer that knows how to do that well enough to sustain the reader's attention for that many pages. And so I've got to have these characters who feel rich and complicated and troubled. And we have to see these snags in their, um, their, their lives where we can get a handhold to understand them. And we see the story kind of grabbing. It's like when, when you're you know, driving in snow and you've got kind of knobby tires, like when we used to live in West Virginia, those tires are searching out rough parts in the road to grab onto to keep going over this ice and that's that's how i think about my characters lives how many complications can i put them under without breaking their characterization in order to make them interesting in terms of waiting to see what's going to make them fly or sink or implode or, or what's going to happen to them well that's a good transition into a few writing life questions here um you write in this book and also in your other books about, uh, you know, various uh, 
class divisions, race issues, and that kind of thing. And in this book in particular, you picked the year 1984 and you put this, you know, racial tension at the heart of the book. Why do you think it's important, Wiley, for uh, Southern writers to explore um, and expose these issues of racial and class injustice? Um, I think it's important for all writers who feel called, not just Southern writers. I think that we have the most obvious history of it, um, but this history is everywhere. I mean, mm. you know, some of the most racist, outright racialized moments in America's history aren't necessarily always in the South, you know. But I think that I feel a particular duty to doing it um, to uncover these things because I have a duty to to facts and reality as a as a fiction writer. Even I want my books to feel real and resonant, and I want them to portray the weather, both cultural, political, intellectual of the time. And 1984 was a time when these kinds of racialized attitudes, this kind of prejudice, was so implicit in everyday life. Um, it, it wasn't even, it wasn't even as spoken as, as, as explicitly as it is now. There weren't these kind of markers of explicit racism or, you know, anti this or that as there is now, you know, I grew up in, in North Carolina in 1984, I was seven or eight years old. I remember Jesse Helms, you know, I remember it being morning in America. I remember Born in the USA. I remember the welfare queen in Willie Horton. And I remember how those things were talked about. And so I grew up with those things just woven in, as a matter of fact. You know, it's 1984. Ronald Reagan won 60% of the popular vote and carried every state except Minnesota. And so, you know, we we were not a divided nation and we certainly weren't divided in North Carolina. We were all pretty much on the same page. If you looked like me and you were from the social class that I was from, which was middle-class bad Southern Baptist, you know, we all kind of saw the world the same way, but now as an adult, I have the presence of mind and also the ability to stand here in 2021 and look back to 1984 and say, Oh my God, all of this other stuff was going on. All of this stuff was there. I just wasn't allowed or encouraged to look at these racialized relationships. I wasn't allowed or encouraged to see how issues of class limited my life and my parents' life, right? You know, my dad was the first person in his entire family to go to college. Um, and that affected my life in ways that I see affecting my children's life. You know, we're still a pretty middle-class family and I still now see these things playing out in, in class strictures and structures that my parents just refused to acknowledge back in 1984. And so I'm just interested in going in there and unearthing this stuff and thinking deeply and longly and completely and honestly about the ways in which we can coast through life with all of these implied things that we all seem to agree on like this, or we can look around and make the implicit more explicit and say, wow, that conversation I just had really revealed somebody's heart in a way that surprised me. I need to sit with that and think about who this person is. 
and what role I want them to play in my life. I need to really think about that, that, that coded language that political candidate just used and not just vote for him because he promises to lower my taxes, which never happened for my parents because <laughs> they were middle class, right? And so I, I'm just in a point in my life when I'm just – I'm not interested in letting the past be the past because I see how it affects my life day to day. I see how North Carolina in 1984 affects my worldview in a moment-to-moment experience of being alive. Yeah, and, and the other interesting thing about this book, you, you know, you've got the mystery. You're trying to figure out, okay, what about the plane? Why was this person shot? Um, you've got the conflict that's going on. But you have what I think is true to life in any small maybe sheriff's office or law enforcement uh, branch in a, in a small town. Not everybody thinks alike. And so Winston Barnes, who's somewhat progressive, even though he's older, uh, he's fighting the internal realistic fact that uh, his deputies don't agree with him. They might be siding with the guy who's running. They're racist, and he's got to battle that as well, uh, which is kind of really speaks to maybe what goes on. Hopefully, on a, it gets a lot of press, but on a smaller scale in law enforcement in general today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think it it hopefully does go go on on a on a smaller scale and i've got plenty of friends who are police officers you know of, of various races and, and backgrounds and ethnicities and i think they w- they would agree that that's that's much more so the case obviously than i think in 1984 but something that i also wanted wit- wanted to use winston's character as you know i think that you know to call him progressive in 1984 means he probably voted for richard nixon which now he would be, you know, on the far left of the Republican Party. Um, so, you know, he's not, you know, George McGovern, but he is, you know, a man who is trying to see the end, not the means to the end, but the man is trying to see the end of the decision, the ethical implications, the societal implications, the legal implications of all these situations that he's finding himself in. And there's a moment between him and the sheriff and, and his secretary. When Winston learns that the night before, Bradley Fry and a, and a gang of men had been driving through a black community called The Grove, shooting off guns, flying the Confederate flag, and kind of terrorizing black residents and vandalizing their homes. And the, a number of calls come in, and Winston never gets the messages. He goes into the office the next day. And when he finds out about the chaos of the night before and that all these messages were passed on, he goes to his secretary and says, where are these messages? Why didn't you give me these messages? And her response is, because there's no law against just driving around, which is how she chooses to see these night rides. Like it's like calling what happened on January 6th, just normal tourist stuff is one Republican House member did. It's trying to recast something that is evil, that is um, dangerous, and and trying to put a a finer polish on it. And in that moment, Winston looks at this woman that he's worked alongside of for almost two decades and thinks, oh my God, this is who you are. This is how you see the world. And this is the first time that the situation has arisen where I have to decide what I'm going to do about it. And he knows in that moment that every interaction that he and the secretary have is going to be colored. There are, there, are, there are going to be no more simple niceties. 
There was going to be no more gentle teasing in the office. There was going to be no more organic displays of friendship and collegiality. Everything is going to be colored by that line she said and Winston's realization of what that meant. And that is the moment thematically that I was writing toward in the entire novel because so many of us over the past decade or so have had those moments, whether it's over slogans, whether it's over vaccination efforts or masks. Somebody says something and we think, oh my God, that's who you are. That's who you are. No matter what side you're on or what side the person is on who says it, and we think, we have to think, what does this mean for us now? What does this mean for us going forward? And what's interesting to me, I've been thinking a lot about this, is we are all so certain that we see our contemporary moment in America and our past so clearly, no matter if you're an anti-vaxxer or you believe in science or you believe in QAnon, we are all so certain that the only thing we're willing to be critical of is our perception of one another. And I'm so interested in that. And I wrote this novel to go back to 1984 to to ask myself, has this always been the case? What if this were the case more back then? Well, it's a great book, a great read. I've got one last question. But listeners, you can be able to pick this up in a few days. Uh, It releases on September the 21st. And uh, when we're done here, you can jump over to Patreon because Wiley and I are going to have a conversation about his writing life a little bit more, a little bit deeper, uh, find out uh, where he got started and a couple of his thoughts on different things. That's at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. Wiley, one last question here. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value, you've now got four novels out. Uh, could you boil it down to something with your experience? Just read. Just keep reading. You know, that that's what read and be around writers. That's what I would. That's what I would tell my younger self. That's great. Read a lot of books, uh, be in community with writers, which you do. And I understand you started on, you've already diving into another novel. I saw that in your newsletter recently. Uh, you did that, started about a couple of months ago as you're getting ready for summer, I mean, for fall classes here. Uh, we'll be looking forward to that. I'm not going to grill you on that yet because you're, <laughs> you're probably in the early stages there. But I want to thank you for uh, being on Charlotte's podcast and also sharing uh, all this great information uh, about uh, when ghosts come home. All right. Thank you, Landis. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.